Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. And I think maybe we have a special guest today. You want to say hi? Woo woo. I'm back, baby. This is Abby Martin. <laughs> Fuck yeah, back in the saddle. We're back in the Let's goddamn go. saddle. Let's Riding go. straight to hell. A horse ride to hell. <laughs> <laughs> baby brain and all. Um, Are yeah, you still baby brain? I'm super baby brained out, dude. I mean, this is something that's actually been factually proven that for up to two years after having a kid, your brain literally reconfigures. It undergoes significant like remodeling of the gray matter in your brain. So I was under the impression that just the sleep deprivation for the last three months straight has made me feel real dumb. Like I've lost like 20 IQ points or something. But I think that's just the way it's going to be, baby. So I got to get ready. <laughs> I don't know you if it's ever going to get better. Hit, is what you're saying? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you seem just as sharp as ever to me. So I don't notice it. So that's what's up. So I apologize if I, you know, just sound super dumb now, but that's what's going on. Now you sound um, very happy. Well, thanks, Robbie. My brother's been doing a ridiculously long series for the past three months for the bonus episode of the Freemasonic history of the United States and different ways that Freemasons have shaped our reality. It is very trippy. I'm only on the first one still. I'm trying to get through it. And it's really fascinating so far, I have to say. Yeah, it's uh, something I've been wanting to do for a long time. I mean, in fact, uh, our very, very first episode of Media Roots Radio was kind of like a really amateurish uh, version of uh, me trying to do this um, like 10 years ago. So I feel like I've really improved my ability to do research and piece together history in the last 10 years. And I'm trying to cover it in a way that no one else has. I mean, even though I'm, I wouldn't say I'm anti-Mason, but I, I mean, I don't, I think it's kind of a joke. Uh, it's kind of an institution worthy of mockery for me personally. I feel like I've done so much research on this podcast that it will actually be of value to people who are interested in Masonic history, including Masons. Like that's how much work I put into mm -hmm. this. Um, Cause I, I mean, I've read a lot of Masonic history books and none of them actually piece together the American story of Masonry, like starting from before the founding fathers all the way to Mormonism uh, to the 20th century, you know, um, to world war two to Harry Truman to the Nazi Germany's treatment of Masons. Um, all these things have never been pieced together in a chronology before. So I'd like to think this is probably the the only complete chronology that's been done so far like this, of that much time spanning of the American history of Freemasonry. So I'm pretty proud of it. Um, it's even just the Joseph Smith Mormonism stuff is absolutely mind-blowing. I had no idea how much crossover there was with Freemasonry the incredible story of the Mormon wars. There were multiple Mormon wars and bloody battles. Joseph Smith tried to amass a 3,500 person large militia in the city of Nauvoo, Illinois. Like he basically tried to take yeah. over the United States. He amassed a bigger militia than any state militia had amassed. So this dude was insane, insanely brilliant, crazy like a fox, if you want to say it that way. And it's actually interesting how how Mormons 
try to whitewash his past and make him seem like this saint, but also American historians almost downplay and almost try to omit him from the record because it's, I almost feel like they don't want anybody else to do what he did again. Like, like it was so crazy and it could have tipped the balance of the United States to such a degree that like a historian sort of like brush him aside, even though his impact in American culture is like insane. You know, and it's not just his religion. It's like what he was able to do in terms of like gaining power. It's incredible. Yeah, I recommend everybody go and listen to that if that's a subject you're interested in. And there's, there's, it's weird too, because I think we mentioned this last time, Abby, is that QAnon is bringing back this discussion of Masonic conspiracy theories yeah. and how there's historical resonance in the U.S. We can go into that in a little bit, but it's, it's sort of like all these things are sort of coming together now and, and culture again. So it's, I think it's good timing to talk about this stuff. Absolutely. And just the the secret knowledge that they claim to have that, that roots back to the occult and all of these different things. That's really absolutely mind-bending stuff, Robbie, that you've done here. Um, and it's accompanied with really cool music that brings you through this narrative, paints a picture that I don't think a lot of people understand about the history of this country and the world, frankly, because this is a, a global movement. I was probably a little more conspiratorial about what the Masons were about 10 years ago. And I'm not, it's not a pro Masonry thing. It's not trying to downplay their role, but it is trying to sort of comb through the disinformation. I mean, cause there's a lot of, you know, hyperbolic stuff about how they ate children's brains. They, you know, uh, they, <laughs> right. all kinds of stuff. I mean, there's even like, you know, Masons were looked down upon even back then because it was like a men secret society of men. A lot of people thought that they were, a lot of closeted gay men would join Masonry. And that, and so actually that's probably, some of that is probably true. But back then it was looked at as almost like, you know, sacrilegious, like it was like the worst thing to be gay. So there's, there's so many interesting aspects of it that I think people will really enjoy. And there's even a bizarre tie into one of America's greatest pastimes, baseball, which mm -hmm. kind of blew my mind and talk to any Freemason. They'll agree that baseball is the most Masonic sport. So that's all I'll say on that on for now, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll really blow people's minds in part three, I think, which will come out wow. at the end of September. Well, I wanted to also give a tribute to my friend and colleague, Kevin Zies. He was the co-founder of Popular Resistance alongside his partner, Margaret Flowers. He was an activist. He was a, an attorney for civil rights. I first met him on Breaking the Set. Um, he would come on quite a bit to talk about everything from trade to net neutrality. He was just one of those people who was on the forefront of literally every single struggle Every single fiber of his being was dedicated to the cause and the movement for peace and justice. Another time that I remember quite distinctly from being in D.C. was hosting this party with him outside of Tom Wheeler's house, which was Obama's FCC commissioner, to try to draw attention to you know the erosion of net neutrality. And it was just really fun. And again, like him and Margaret were just out there, whether it be talking about Julian Assange or any sort of U.S. bombing campaign or coup. They were on the front lines drawing attention to that and using their platform to do so. And Popular Resistance is such an important project. I, I recommend everyone to check it out and support their efforts because they're going to keep it alive, obviously, um, and continue to push forward Kevin's legacy through that site. One other thing that is really profound that he did in his life was – occupied the Venezuelan embassy 
in Washington, D.C. He was one of four people who actually got arrested, charged with pretty serious charges where they were facing, I think, a year in jail as well as a really hefty fine. It's just amazing what they did. You know, they they really were trying to prevent that building from being seized by the Waido opposition goons and defended that embassy until the end. And they were in there, I think, at least for a week, maybe more. I think actually it was maybe near two weeks. Um, yeah, weeks long live, part of the Embassy Protection Collective. And it, it was a complete violation of international law, what the opposition tried to do at the behest of the Trump administration. I mean, anyone who doesn't understand that story, please look into it because it was just such a crazy ass moment of when the opposition really revealed themselves, you know, to the world because all these people were staked out in front of the embassy and being protected by the police. Meanwhile, the people who were trying to protect like international law and stake out the embassy on behalf of Venezuelan government because it's illegal, you know, to, that's why Julian Assange was protected in the Ecuadorian embassy. Like you can't, you can't invade an embassy. <laughs> like, so, um, so it's just amazing what happened and how all these people were just crazy, fascistic, like yelling, homophobic, racist slurs at the people who were trying to bring food and aid and trying to basically starve them out, just like the U.S. does to Venezuela in general with and sanctions. It, so, and it was like an astroturf group too. That was, yeah, what was right. so obvious about it. It was like, yeah, you can make the argument that Code Pink, you know, they are they are organized. They got together a group of people. So, yeah, I mean, if you want to make the argument that it wasn't like. Uh, just a bunch of random people, you know, defending the embassy. But the other side of it was like such an obvious astroturf, like fake protest group. It was insane. I mean, like I, I, I haven't seen something like that in a while where it was that obvious, you know. And right, this was right. Blatant. Someone doxed them. Someone doxed a bunch of people outside, and it was like literally members of think tanks and like defense <laughs> contractors, sinister groups, shadowy groups in DC that were mm -hmm. like lobbying fronts. And it's like, wait, so you guys have the time and energy to take like literally a week off work and come camp out in front of the embassy? Like that's weird. Yeah. And it's also, it was just so weird too, how it was like an early iteration of the Trump allowing, you know, how like the, the concept of strategy of tension, you've heard that phrase yeah. before. So like, I don't know why it's not a phrase being used more because a lot of people talk about what Trump is apparently doing without using this phrase. So apparently, I mean, a, 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 historically it means sort of egging on and allowing like violent political actors that are on your side to like do things sort of on your behalf and like giving like license to it. Yeah. And that's what Trump has obviously been doing for his whole presidency. But that Venezuela embassy incident seemed like a really key example of that happening where it was like, oh yeah, we're just going to let the police literally just like stand down and let these people like break and enter into the embassy, like literally like slant, like trying to like break down the door. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and right. the police were literally just standing by and then actually like not allowing people to get food into the embassy and stuff. It was so bizarre how obvious it was that the Trump administration was wanting that to happen. They're like, that, right. that to me was interesting how the media, you know, they covered all these other examples of how like Trump let the the police tear gas people during the, um, you know, when he walked to that church, it was like a, a big show, but they never mentioned that, you know, they never mentioned how obvious that was. That's what's so funny is it was happening here in the US and everyone could see it. You know, there were so many people who were right there looking at the reality and not seeing it reflected in the news and 
you could say that about all the coup shit that was going on, you know, the, the bridge that infamously was like that staged operation that CNN was there. And like, I think Dan Cohen, we talked about how he was like, this is totally fake. No one's talking about what's really going on here. But this was like right here in, <laughs> in DC and still no one was reporting accurately how bizarre that was and how obvious the police cooperation was with the Venezuelan opposition. But I don't want to get too far away from just, again, talking about how Kevin Zees was just such an incredible person, such a beautiful and selfless man. His passing is just such a tremendous loss for the movement and the world, frankly. Um, and, you know, he was just writing me actually to help organize this Assange event that he wanted me to moderate. And unfortunately, I couldn't because of the baby. But we were talking, he was giving me parenting advice, talking about his sons, raising them, and also just talking about this giant garden that him and his wife, or I'm actually not sure if they were married, him and his partner, Margaret Flowers, were cultivating. And he said that they had just planted all these beautiful trees and he was excited for next spring for the cherry trees to bloom. And I just wanted to say that we'll never stop planting those seeds for you, Kevin. Um, I, I really am going to miss you, man. It's really devastating how much loss there has been so far this year and nothing to do with COVID either. Um, it was an honor to have you in my life, to call you a comrade and an ally. And Kevin, we will miss you profoundly. Rest in power, my friend. I wish that I was more familiar with his work. I know that he touched a lot of people. And also someone else who I think touched a lot of people too, who was like maybe more like an established lefty guy was David Graeber, who mm-hmm. who died, um, I want to say like two weeks ago. You know, right. And so I think three prominent left you know respected left activists um people dying so soon is just hitting people really hard and uh understandably so especially when they're all really really good people and really on the right side of shit which is a rare thing right now and and all three of them really were i wasn't too familiar with david graber's work but the more i see what he was all about i'm just like wow this is another really solid dude who you know, contributed in a really enormous way. So I don't know how much worse this this year is going to get, Robbie, but these fires ripping through the Bay Area and here in LA now, I haven't been able to leave the house in two days because the air quality is so dangerous. Uh, talk a little bit about what you're experiencing there with this Blade Runner style orange glow that looks like you're living on Mars and how excited you are about Israeli firefighters coming to help fight them. Um, I'm extremely excited. Um, a shalom, shalom. I mean, thank you for coming to help us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, we're really. I hope that the firefight, the Israeli firefighters, remember to fill their hoses with water instead of chemically um, engineered skunk <laughs> spray. Uh, that I hope they're not, you know, spraying it, trying to put out the wildfires with a simulated sewage that they spray on Palestinians. Uh, that would be really shitty. So, but. You know, it's also kind of bizarre how not only were we contending with weather weapon conspiracies the last time this happened, Abby, and also Mm -hmm. just like right wing talking points about how those goddamn Californian environmentalists don't rake their leaves, you know, that kind Mm -hmm. of shit. There's just nothing that you can say other than climate change is causing this that really will make sense. I mean, right. I almost think that at this point, if you're a right winger and you're living in California, you would almost have to be 
a fucking moron. Like you just have to be like totally delusional to not agree that climate change is having this effect here. It's just it's just so in your face. I mean, I almost feel like coastlines flooding will will be easier for people to deny in the long term. Cuz you know, it's not going to happen fast. It's going to happen more incrementally. This is like so happening so fast and it's unprecedented that like I I I'm hoping that even some conservatives will be like, "Yeah, climate change is a problem. Like it's too fucking dry. Like what do we do?" I mean, but you know, that's maybe too hopeful, but did you see that thing, Abby, about the fires where I, I mentioned the conspiracy stuff because, you know, last year or a couple of years ago, that was the main conspiracy you used to see. Now it's Antifa is causing the Excuse fires. Excuse me? Yeah. Oh, now it's God. Antifa is causing the fires. And guess what? A journalist went to Oregon last night to cover the fires, an independent journalist, and she and her colleagues were stopped at an armed checkpoint by a militia who were out there looking for Antifa in the middle of a fucking fire evacuation. So we're in a bad way. I know people think, oh, we banned QAnon, we dock, you know, whatever, we dock mm-hmm. some Jim Watkins or whatever all these new people are saying. This shit's going to keep getting worse. Like to think that in, actually, you know what's crazy? The Q QAnon social media map right now is showing that Florida is the number two hotspot in the United States for QAnon social media postings. Not Guess what's number one? at all guess what's number one california boom yep i'm not surprised at all i mean i'm I'm not not at this point but if you would have told me six months ago i would have been shocked right right i Um, mean la is the hub of anti-vaxxers in the entire world like outside of countries the health quack quackery new age the secret i mean that's the thing it's like the secret all that stuff is just like a modern it it, yeah yeah, it's just Yeah, no, I mean, I even saw Charlie Kirk talking about how Greta Thunberg was Antifa today. I mean, it's just like, it's so pervasive, this Antifa shit. And it's just so funny because you're literally saying that being anti-fascist is a bad thing. And like, you're a terrorist if you're not pro-fascism. And it Um, goes both ways too, because then the right can be like, well, they said anybody who's anti-fascist is Antifa, so... Right, and then they're like, oh, but you're the real fascist. I love when they say that. Like, you know, you want a police speech. It's like they have no clue what fascism means, and they just like deflect everything, but... The fires are so devastating, Robbie, and it really is the most apparent signifier of climate change in the entire country. I, I honestly would say in don't the world, know. honestly. Yeah. Like, I mean, the air quality in California is rivaling any other place in the world in terms of like, so like, yeah, globally, it should be at this point. It's just so obvious. I do not remember this happening as a child. I don't remember this happening until recently. And I think Fuck it's no. only going to get worse. The the heat wave that happened here, it was just 115 degrees. I talked to Angelinos who've lived here their entire lives, like 60-year-old people. And they were like, this has never been like this before. No. Never. Coupled with the fires. The fact that the National Forestry Service like shut down, literally shut down all these forests uh, for public access for the first time in decades. Yeah. Because that's how serious this shit is right now. This is unprecedented. I mean, even mm-hmm. in terms of like the history of the United States, I mean, I was just, uh, a guy commented on our last episode when we brought up the fire saying that he's a Native American like historian. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that like white Westerners, especially in earlier colonial times would 
say that, you know, the, one of the things we hear about Native Americans is they made the buffalo go extinct. So there's like these mm-hmm. bad things that the sort of white colonials have said throughout history. One of the other things that they said was bad is that the Native Americans would burn forests, you know, unnecessarily for hunting and mm-hmm. all this stuff. In reality, this guy was saying, and I, I wish I remembered his name, but he was saying that Native Americans would actually do backburning and controlled burns of forest areas like to prevent this like that even as far yeah. back as like a, the original native americans like were aware of the regular seasonal fire dangers and would like do their own maintenance on the forest land to help yep. prevent it and that's yeah. really fascinating because it's like something that we're only doing right now is like a last you know me- last ditch measure to like prevent more fires from burning like as they're burning which is the back burning concept you know of controlled right. burns right yeah, it's kind of fascinating to think that like we just don't know how to handle our own shit. Like we took over this land, we colonized it, and it's like, oops, whoop, we don't know what we're doing. Whoopsies. Like that's kind of what happened. So yeah, and talk about late stage capitalism. Those articles that talked about how we're really struggling. We have to import Israeli firefighters because the prisoners are dealing with COVID at the prisons, Robbie. So we we can't galvanize the prisoners like we normally do to fight these fires for literally like pennies on the dollar and risk their lives where, by the way, they can't even become a firefighter once they leave prison, even though they're trained. <laughs> um, so we have to import Israelis to fight them. That's, that's where we're at. And Mike came in the room the other day and he was like, guess what caused the last fire? And I was like, gender reveal. Boom. Pyrotechnics for a gender reveal just lit another giant swath of LA on fire that's been burning, been a fucking blaze for the last two days. It's crazy. So, <laughs> just, so crazy. I know. It's like, what do you even say about it? You know? Yeah. And then, just, like, what is it with these gender reveals, too? I mean, this, this never used to be a thing either. Is this people like asserting gender in a world that's becoming increasingly gender fluid and like non binary? Or is that just me? I don't think thinking I mean, too much into it. I think it might be reading too much into it. I mean, yeah. to me, it almost just seems like people are so bored, want to do things, <laughs> they want to do things to go viral on the internet. Yeah. It's just like the ice bucket challenge. It's like, what the yeah, fuck right. was, like, why did so many people do that shit? I remember watching that thinking like, <laughs> what in the fuck is happening? Is everybody just like a drone and just do, it just, I just think people want to feel like they're part of something. And for some reason, that's like a trend right now. And that's why people do it. They want to post their videos of their like smoke bomb going off. I, I don't, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think it's right. that's that base level. Damn. Well, Robbie, we are officially recording on the anniversary of 9-11, 9-11 yes, 2020. You and I uh, have been doing this podcast for 10 years. We have Almost. been- Almost 10 years. It's going to be 10 years, I think, what, uh, October 30th. So the people should tune Halloween, into our baby, special. Yeah. yeah, people should tune into our special anniversary special. But we have been few and far between of people in the left media that have not been scared to approach questions about 9 11. I think that at this point, as conspiracy culture is becoming more mainstreamed with podcasts like True and On, which you've been on, which have been heavily promoting your stuff, which I really like to see. Um, it's it's given the opportunity to a lot of people on the left to rethink the official narrative of the 9-11 attacks. Because if you look at this logically, Robbie, why would the Bush administration 
tell the truth about the event that precipitated all of the war on terror and reshaped the entire world that we're living in that has just given carte blanche to the military industrial complex and, you know, waged this. Yeah. You know, nightmare that we can't get out of. So, um, well, it's an why don't you talk for about it? War. I mean, yeah. If you want to talk about a nightmare? I mean, not not that we didn't have an excuse for endless war before nine eleven, but this like makes it at an even deeper level. Like, mm-hmm. even someone like Tulsi Gabbard can run mm-hmm. an anti-war campaign, claiming to be a hawk on terrorists, and even saying on her anti-war campaign on her campaign tour. That we that Al Qaeda declared war on us on nine eleven, and we needed to like wage war back again. Like right, right, that kind right. of shit only comes out of nine eleven programming and brainwashing. Nobody thought like that before nine eleven. It's absurd to wage a war against a tactic. You don't even have to be a truther or a conspiracy person to just see through the false framing of nine eleven. I mean, even the attack on Afghanistan. So because the Taliban was harboring Bin Laden. That justifies us attacking the entire country. Not if you look at what the Taliban said. They clearly stated multiple times that they would hand over bin Laden, they would extradite him, even though there was no extradition treaty with the Taliban in the United States, just like there isn't with the U.S. and a bunch of other countries. Taliban said they would hand bin Laden over with evidence. We didn't, we didn't give a shit about providing any evidence. In fact, even in the 9-11 Commission report, there's no direct line from bin Laden to KSM to the hijackers, even though that's the, that's the narrative we've all been told. I don't subscribe to a particular theory about 9-11, about necessarily who did it, but I lean towards that it was people in high levels of the U.S. government that either let or made the attacks happen. That is my personal belief. And I hate that people have to put you in a box and they're like, okay, so what happened then? And you're like, I have no idea. Why do I have to fill in the blanks? Why can't we just question what we've been told? Because it's so full of obvious holes. And if you even go back to the Clinton administration in Afghanistan, which we did for the Afghanistan documentary for Empire Files, that pipeline that they were trying to lay with the Taliban, the Taliban started to get real unreliable. And the Clinton administration was like literally looking for a reason to invade Afghanistan back then. Absolutely. Over this pipeline deal. All the pieces were being set up. We did a two-part episode of Media Roots Radio called Clinton's War on Terror that goes over the things Abby is saying and goes over all these bizarre missed opportunities to do anything about bin Laden, how CNN was able to interview bin Laden, but like the CIA wasn't able to find him. I mean, just strange, unbelievable contradictions like that leading up to 9-11 that do not make sense, that fly in the face of what we've been told. And even you said people, how leftists are maybe now coming around to the idea. I mean, I think generally speaking, a lot of leftists will have always admitted, they'd be like, you know, these truthers are crazy, but Bush probably did lie about 9-11. Right, right. You know, these people lie, the Saudis were involved. So there's there's these sort of already, like, a lot of leftists will already agree with that. Um, but I think generally speaking, they're deriving that from layers of propaganda that have come out after 9-11 by like, in my opinion, like sketchy journalists, Bush administration connected surrogates, um, like the looming tower is sort of like the neoliberal official story of 9-11. That, and, and I would say mo- the majority of even far leftists subscribe to the neoliberal narrative of 9-11. They haven't even dug deeper than that. And that's sort of a shame. 
And I would just really encourage people to not be afraid simply because there's so much taboo among conspiracies because of QAnon and all And there's so crap. much horrible shit, yeah, out there. There's so much tainted, yeah. debunked conspiracy stuff regarding 9-11, but it shouldn't deter you from actually looking at what is factual. I mean, like 9-11 Press for Truth. Start with Fahrenheit 9-11, for God's sake. Like, go back to Michael Moore's documentary and then move on to 9-11 Press for Truth. Yeah. Um at the very least, just open your mind up to that because that is completely documented research based on publicly available things that even commission members themselves <laughs> agreed with. And widows of people who were lost on 9-11 had to press for the commission for over a year. Henry Kissinger was initially appointed to run the commission. There's so many things that make no sense even on its face, like the fact that all these people said, you know, we could never have predicted planes flying into buildings. I mean, that that's just outrageous. It's completely outrageously false. Like, why would you even say that when there's well, so much documentation proving that you guys were like planning for this exact strategy? Yeah. And it's it's just so obvious how many lies, how much weird manip media manipulation happened to us. I mean, there was four different instances where the mainstream media was trying to convince the public that Palestinians were behind the 9-11 attacks on the day of 9-11. And like, nobody remembers that. That's crazy. You know, why would they do that? Why would there, why were there so many different little inserts, like including footage of Palestinians celebrating? Right. Trying to basically just make us hate Arab people and want us to just stir up all this bloodthirst in us. You know, we weren't even shown pictures of like bin Laden on TV on 9-11 to like get us to hate bin Laden. It was pictures of Palestinians. And that's like a really disturbing aspect of it. I think people need to remember, like it really programmed a deep racist vibe in American yeah. society. I mean, 20 years later, I still hear people talking about how Palestine celebrated 9-11. Yeah, me too. That's how ingrained that propaganda is. And that's how well executed that was. And it was really rolled out, starting with Don Kagan himself, right? Well, yeah. I mean, Don Kagan was the the only PNAC member to directly go on record with his son, Fred Kagan, and say that we should invade Palestine as a response to 9-11 to, quote, right. clean it out. And Clean it out. I mean, that alone is a really strange narrative that I feel like journalists would be really like smart to go back and look at because there's a lot of think threads to pull on there. But another side of it that I think is interesting is we'll get all these secondhand narratives of 9-11. Like, Paul Greengrass's United 93 movie where the, you know, it's about Todd Beamer saying let's roll and rescuing, you know, taking over the plane and all that stuff. But the only actual phone calls from 9-11 are very creepy. They represent just a totally different energy and vibe than we've been shown on the media. And I'm not saying that these, you can glean anything necessarily like useful from these phone calls other than sort of the patriotic rah-rah narrative that's in the press about what it was like on those planes or what these people went through is completely different than the actual firsthand accounts that we have. The only recording of a stewardess calling 911 that we actually have is super creepy. Like, it, it comes off almost like a David Lynch movie. We're seeing the back. Um, the cockpit's not answering. Somebody's stabbed in business class. And um, I think there's mates. That we can't breathe. I, I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. Which flight are you on? Flight 12. And what seat are you in? Ma'am, are you there? Yes. What, what, 
what seat are you in? Ma'am, what seat are you in? We're up, we just left Boston, we're up in the air. I know. We're supposed to go to L.A. and the cockpit's not answering their phone. We're okay, but what seat point. are you sitting in? What's the number of your seat? Okay, I'm in my jump seat right now. Okay. At 3R. Okay, you're the flight attendant? I'm sorry, did you say you're the flight attendant? Yes, hello? Hi, I'm going to have to speak up. I can't hear you. Sure. What is your name? Okay, my name is Betty Ong. I'm number three on flight 11. Okay. And the cockpit is not answering their phone. And there's somebody staffed in business class, and there's we can't breathe in business class. Somebody's got mace or something. Can you describe the person that you said someone is what in business class? Um, I'm, I'm sitting in the back. Somebody's coming back from business. If you can hold on for one second, Certainly. they're coming back. I'm just saying, it's just like pretty much everything we've been told about 9-11 is like manipulated to serve some kind of patriotic narrative at the very least. So I just yeah, think people I mean, should look into yeah. it deeper. There's also mm -hmm. another movie called 
in their own words, the untold stories of the 9-11 families. It was a movie made with all uncut or all extra footage from 9-11 Press for Truth. Mm -hmm. I would argue it's even stronger than 9-11 Press for Truth because this is mostly just footage. It's called In Their Own Words, The Untold Stories of the 9-11 Families. It's on YouTube. And also Daniel Hopsicker's movie, Muhammad Atta and the the Venice Flying Circus, is just all about how bizarre the behavior was of the Muhammad Atta group of hijackers in Florida and how that also flies in the face of what we've been told about how who the hijackers were, what kind of people they were. I mean, this is where all that stuff about the strip clubs and the um, mm-hmm. strange behavior of Muhammad Atta tried to s- literally steal a crop duster off of a runway. I mean, who yep. does that when they're in charge of one of the most quote-unquote sophisticated terrorist attacks in history? Who acts like that? It just, there's so many odd contradictions. So I guess, I mean, we could talk about this forever. I think we should probably do something about it again because, you know, I don't know exactly about what, but. Well, especially because my career was uh, every, you know, every time I do anything remotely big, like even the Jacobin podcast, I have people coming after me about the truth or shit. And it's Mm -hmm. just like this permanent tarring of my character and journalistic integrity because I dared to say that I thought we were lied to about 9-11, you know, and it's just really disgusting. And I think that the QAnon stuff and how Trump has really monopolized the conspiracy culture and momentum and pushed it right wing and to benefit him against this so-called deep state apparatus that I guess is democratic um, in nature. It's it's very strange. It's very, very strange. And I think that it's turned a lot of people off from conspiracies in general. But then again, you see this countercurrent of people like Truanon who are opening people's eyes and maybe lessening that stigma a lot. So yeah. I guess my only advice is to just not pay attention to any of that shit. There's a reason why the establishment has poured so many resources to smear um, and defame anyone who questions this, including very high-profile people uh, that you actually put into a thread, including Michael Moore himself. You know that said oh, there yeah. was a lot more that he didn't include in Fahrenheit 9/11, including the fact that it took over two hours for NORAD to scramble jets to intercept a flight. I mean, um, completely mind-boggling shit. It's just so such a lie when people say that 9/11 conspiracies are the product of right-wing charlatans like Alex Jones or right-wing grifters. Mm -hmm. You can hear statements from Hillary Clinton and Dan Rather, Dan Rather talking about how he thinks the building falling looks like controlled demolition. He's just saying it on TV. That's right out of his own mouth on the day of 9-11. That shows you that on a gut level, people thought these things. Hillary Clinton is saying on the Senate floor that she's alluding that the Bush administration knew of the 9-11 attacks in advance because John Ashcroft was privately flying instead of commercially flying. These are statements that these people are making. They're not getting these from right-wing conspiracy websites. Right. So right. That I need people to understand that. That's a lie. If you're a leftist who hates truthers, that's fine. But understand that that narrative that you're being fed, that it's a right, an invention of right-wing grifters, is not true. There's plenty of evidence to show that on a gut level, tons of people. And in fact, I remember actually 9-11 conspiracies being most of the domain of leftists back back in the early days. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that's a that's a rewritten narrative. I mean, I'm I'm glad to see the current shifting. I think maybe, you know, I don't know what's causing it, but um I I, I think that QAnon and these type of fake conspiracies shouldn't turn people off from things that might be real conspiracies out there. Right. 
Yeah, do you have any more to say about 9-11? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, the last thing I'll say is the part that really sticks with me, and I wanted to leave people with this. If you completely reject anything that has to do with questioning the official 9-11 story because of, you know, thinking that it's a waste of time, that leftists have redirected too much of their energy to, you know, make all these ridiculous accusations that can't be proven. What I find the most fascinating about the day itself is that obviously once the plane hit the building, right, the first plane hit the first tower, obviously the entire government knew at that moment what it was, right? Because of the warnings, <laughs> because of the the memos, the briefings, all of that, right? Oh, yeah. So if that's true, why were all of the people directed to go back inside the second tower? Why were they still under the impression that it was an errant plane? Unless they want, I mean, unless they yeah. literally just like didn't care about all these people dying and wanted to maximize the death. It's, it's pretty gruesome to think about, but there is something just very bone chilling about the fact that those people were directed to go back in that second tower yep. as well as the firefighters directed to go, um, inside. Yeah, and the Bush administration could have put out a, a warning immediately and said, evacuate both towers. We believe this is a terrorist attack. Right. Because they knew. Right. So even so if you don't even that? think that they, they were involved, they had to have known as soon as the first plane hit that it wasn't an accident. Right. You'd have to be, you would have to be willfully ignorant to not look at that. I mean, Condi Rice's testimony, it's, open, it's totally transparent that... She is lying through her teeth about the warnings straight to the 9-11 commission. The video clip is, is out there for you to check out. And that Pakistani journalist that asked about the wire transfer is like redacted from. Oh, that's super White bizarre House too. Yeah. Super, super bizarre. Briefing. Yeah. And you know, there were definitely some kind of proxies used in the operation. There was definitely some kind of Saudi involvement of some kind. We even did an, a whole episode of media roots about the Israeli art student thing where like hundreds of literal Israeli spies were in the United States leading up to 9-11, spying on the DEA and the FBI. And several of them were actually like living like really close to Muhammad Atta and stuff in Florida. So there's a lot of weird stuff about 9-11 that when you put it all together, it's not that it's like, oh my God, we've, we've figured it out. Here's who did it. You know, these are the suspects. No, it's actually like, it makes it way weirder makes it seem just much bigger than we've been told about what it was. I could tell you now, after 20 years of looking into it, I feel like I know less about it now than I felt like I mm -hmm. did 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think most people who actually honestly look at it will feel like, wow, this is a way bigger story to crack than I ever imagined. And I agree with you. I feel like it's more opaque to me than ever before. And that's what I regret the most is making these declarations, you know, me too. 15 years ago as an activist at 20 years old without really knowing what the fuck I was talking about because, you know, it, it, we don't know and we'll never know. And that's the truth. It, that is the truth. I mean, and that's, that's the most honest place to be. And that's why things like QAnon are so frustrating because there are little kernels of truth, you know, like they want to talk about the deep state, which is a real thing. But then they're like, here's who's in the deep state. Here's every single person. Like, no, that's the whole point. If we knew who the deep state was, we could have like figured out how to fight this thing decades ago. It's like, these are unelected people that we probably don't even know who the fuck they are. That's the, that's the reality of the deep state. The reality is you don't know. 
you just know that there are these forces at work and you can only really see the results of them and their sort of machinations. You don't know exactly how it's happening. That's the whole point of like these intelligence operations. But Robbie, Nora bin Laden, one of bin Laden's nieces, said that Trump is going to save us all. I mean, she's a full-blown QAnoner. And she's, she's super stoked on Trump. She didn't just say he's going to save us all. She said that if you don't vote for Trump, there's going to be another 9-11. <laughs> Did you see that? Yeah. And here's what's also crazy. The niece of Osama bin Laden and Michael Scheuer, who is, in case you don't know, the dude who was supposed to catch and kill Nora bin Laden's uncle for the CIA, are now both full-blown QAnoners. Michael Scheuer is the Alex Station CIA station chief working under the Clinton administration who was in charge of catching and capturing and killing bin, bin Laden who is married to Alfreda Burkowski, the redhead main character in Zero Dark Thirty. Mm -hmm. That is fucking bizarre. I don't know how to wrap my head around that other than, hey, you know, I bet you the, the conspiracy people who are like, way back in the day when we were into, more into the truth or thing, <laughs> who were like, Bin Laden's an actor, he's on a green screen. Those people are probably like running in circles right now doing victory laps, you know, like this probably feeds into their narrative i never you know was i never went that far out but like it just seems so crazy that bin laden's niece and the, the guy who was in charge of killing her fucking uncle are both now queuing honors i mean how weird and he's Scheuer was also saying a couple months ago he was writing op-eds saying that the deep state tried to take out trump with russiagate QAnon is real we need to execute the people in the deep state who did this including john brennan Former CIA station chief is saying we need to execute John Brennan, the former CIA director. <laughs> I don't, I mean, this just makes me go full-blown tinfoil hat to the point where I'm like, are these people just all playing like game with each other? Are they serious or not? Like, what the hell is happening here? This is right. unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I'm sure Bin Laden has dozens of nieces and nephews. I'm not sure how many he has. So oh I yeah, he's, know, got, a, he's got a bunch, yeah. But um, but yeah, I was just like, oh my god, this is crazy that this woman supports Trump, you know. And then I real, and then I realized that she was a QAnoner, and I was like, okay, that makes a lot more sense. But uh, but it makes but when you say it makes a lot more sense, I mean, yeah, yes and no. Like, how does it actually make sense? The fact in the that, sense that I mean, it doesn't make sense, <laughs> but it also makes sense that if you believe in QAnon, then you would actually think something that, that grandiose that Trump would prevent another nine eleven. You know, and only Trump can prevent another nine eleven. But I mean, because here's the weird thing that that Anne, what is her name, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the one who was, yeah, um, I know she's, yeah, she just said that she thinks that nine eleven was an inside job. So now, like QAnoners are ruining. 9-11 conspiracies. And I even see some of like the blue checkmark people who study QAnon being like, yeah. oh no, Building 7 is trending. These QAnon wackos are at it again. It's like, oh man, like there's these two things are not related at all. Like, like QAnon basically waters down every conspiracy and tries to connect it all together into a pro-Trump narrative. I don't even know how they're weaving in 9-11, but yeah, it's just super weird. It's just so creepy. Like 15 years ago, if I saw that people were openly running for Congress and poised to win that were like full-blown conspiracy theorists and 9-11 truthers, I'd be like blown away. And the fact that it's just like crazy-ass QAnon right-wingers oh, yeah. is extremely disconcerting. And I think even back then, say if that happened 
10 years ago when we first started doing this podcast, we'd be like, this is crazy that someone's running for Congress who's a 9-11 truther and that they're also just making themselves look like an insane lunatic. Like this has to be right. some kind of setup. Like that's that's what we would think. <laughs> I mean, it just, but now it's actually doesn't seem that way because there's so, because this stuff is just being pumped out so hard. And the president is promoting Yes. Her. You have this asymmetrical warfare on behalf of the Trump administration where the Big Ten approach is basically translating into sending Trump surrogates to campaign with Laura Loomer. Like, that's how big this fucking tent is, where you have the president himself hyping up Marjorie Cohen Green, sending his own, like, family. In fact, I think it was, like, a member of Trump's family that went and met with Laura Loomer, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, no, I think you're right. I mean, this is how crazy it is, Abby. The guy, I think his name is Alex Kaplan, I want to say, who has been covering the um, the growth of how many congressional candidates are queuing honors. He... This is a point that I feel like got really lost for some reason in the mix. And I don't know why they keep getting buried, but I feel like there's this general vibe right now where all of a sudden when I went on office hours, it seemed like a dam broke and everybody was starting willing to believe that Trump was somehow pushing or involved in Q finally. Like it finally became acceptable to believe that. But then at the same time, you saw this sort of pushback against that again, where it's now like, no, Q is just... A guy named Jim Watkins, who's this pig farmer in the Philippines who r runs HN. Like, it's just all him. It's all, it's all a LARP. It's all just this sleazy right-wing guy in the Philippines. So I noticed there's almost like this, now there's a sort of rollback. But this story that Alex Kaplan put out got really lost in the mix that I think is really integral to understanding this idea that the Trump campaign, not just Trump's administration, but the Trump campaign is involved in QAnon. And I say this because... Alex Kaplan wrote a story about how there's a popular QAnon show that had Trump surrogates from the campaign, like not like actual surrogates like Nico Houses for Tulsi Gabbard, but paid open campaign employees going on this QAnon show, encouraging these other QAnon candidates. So one theory that the guy actually put out in the article, and he didn't like have any proof for this, was that the Trump campaign was somehow involved in getting these QAnon candidates to like even come out of the ward work in the first place. Like these people might actually in some way be in a weird trickle down way, actual Trump surrogates, like these candidates wait, wait, wait. themselves. Wait, wait, wait. So that's crazy. Can you take us back and explain why you don't think Jim Watkins is Q? Well, f first of all, I just want to say okay. Alex Kaplan didn't exactly lay out the theory the way that I'm saying it. I'm connecting some dots that he didn't connect. But he did say that the Trump campaign is reaching out to these QAnon shows. And that's weird because that sort of implies like, and they're encouraging political participation and activism. So even if they're not recruiting these people to run, they're encouraging people to. Mm -hmm. And that's already been mapped out by him, by this journalist, Alex Kaplan. So that's like sig very significant. And that to me shows that it's not... That why would the Trump campaign, just like Alex Jones, if they felt like they could trust Alex Jones, they would keep pumping Infowars. They would keep promoting it. At a certain point, it seems like they don't want to promote it anymore. So you have to wonder, if everybody's so sure that Q is Jim Watkins, this random guy who co-founded A-Chan, who lives in the Philippines, why would the Trump administration decide to put so many eggs in this basket? How could they trust this guy? To this extent.
Why would Michael Flynn's whole family and himself give an oath to a sleazy right-wing pig farmer in the Philippines? So this is my logic I'm using here. I don't think that the Trump administration thinks this is anonymous. I think that people in the Trump campaign and administration know who's doing this. I think that maybe Jim Watkins, the co-founder of HN, is involved in some way. But I think that for some reason, the Trump administration feels like they could trust whoever's behind this, meaning I think it's people actually involved in the Trump campaign. Part of the reason I also think this narrative needs to be not fully trusted is because it got kickstarted by the other co-founder of HN named Frederick Brennan. Frederick Brennan is this guy who has brittle bone disease. That's a genetic uh, bone disorder. And he co-founded uh, 8chan with Jim Watkins. Uh, and I don't know the year that he did it in. But now he's saying that Jim Watkins, since he's left 8chan, he left out of protest. They had some falling out. Frederick Brennan is claiming that Jim Watkins has sole control over the Q postings. And that he has extra additional evidence to suggest that Jim Watkins is behind qmap.pub, which is a very popular website. It's actually the website that most people get the Q drops from. It's an aggregated website that collects all, together all the 8chan postings in one place and interprets them with its own sort of editorial slant. Jim Watkins apparently just bought this domain from somebody. Now, Frederick Brennan is trying to claim that because Jim Watkins now owns this domain and because he's now the sole person behind 8Kun, which is the new version of 8chan, that this means that Jim Watkins has is Q, he's been, that Q's been doxxed, it's over. Another guy recently today got associated with Jim Watkins and as being associated with somehow posting as Q. So now people feel that there's two guys who are involved in this, that they're both involved in the back end of the HN website. I would say Frederick Brennan is not a fully trustworthy figure in this equation because if you believe that Jim Watkins is the one posting as Q now, and you think you have enough evidence for that, that also means that Frederick Brennan could have been posting as Q when he was still involved in HN. So you have to almost believe both narratives. So why should you trust a guy who is now not, not taking any responsibility, trying to remove himself from the equation and also not acknowledging, hey, here's my theory, but my theory also means that I technically could have been posting as Q2. Here's why I wasn't. He doesn't address any of that. No one's like asked him that. People are just blasting out his little theories. I'm a little bit confused. And it, to me, it smells funny. Like, it does seem like there's this narrative is being a little constructed. I don't know. I, and I think that part of it has to do with this idea that QAnon could be some kind of actual Trump administration or Mike Pompeo, you know, CIA operation. But how did that guy have exclusive control over the postings if it was part of Trump's? I mean, I agree with you that it seems like it has to be coordinated at some level with the Trump administration. Yeah. Um, but... But how does that explain how this guy is saying he had sole control over where Q was posting? Well, he's just saying that ultimately, Jib Watkins can decide what if Q posts or not. He can, and that Jim Watkins has actually helped boost Q by like posting himself in the form and being like, this is Q. 
like I can confirm this is Q. So Jim Watkins has claimed himself in the form of his own postings on his own message board that he's has some like sort of authority to say that this is a real Q posting. See, that seems still like they're putting their eggs in the basket of trusting this crazy ass dude. Well, that of course. So not only are they trusting him and maybe these slip ups or brags that he wanted to do, they're trusting Frederick Brennan too much. And I think that Frederick Brennan has a lot of buyer's remorse. He wants to write himself out of this equation and seem like he came out sort of a hero going against A-Chan and Jim Watkins. I don't think that's quite what's happening here. I And here's my challenge to anybody who's a QAnon researcher out there, even if you're you know, a mainstream journalist who's you know, sort of secretly listening to our podcasts. I, I, I'd like to think we do original research on this podcast. And one of the bits of original research that none of these QAnon researchers have picked up that I'm very interested in why they haven't picked it up. I want to see them actually try to debunk it. As I challenge anybody to find an earlier iteration of what is now the QAnon narrative than what InfoWars regular guest Steve Pachenik said in his video that was posted on the Drudge Report three days before the 2016 election in November. People have listened to my two-parter QAnon episode know exactly what I'm talking about. For some reason, no other journalist has picked up this research, even though Steve Pachenik is a deeply CIA-connected, quote-unquote, intelligence source, not just for InfoWars, not just for Adam Curry's show, No Agenda Radio. He's also an intelligence source for Tom Clancy on literally almost every single one of his books. And I'm not exaggerating. You can look at the credits of Tom, there's like a website, I don't remember what it's called, it's kind of like IMDB for book credits. See, Pachenik is a consultant on almost every mainstream, like military intelligence movie book that you've seen in your like lifetime, if you're my or Abby's age. Jack Ryan, the character in at least two of Clancy's books, because Jack Ryan's like a reoccurring character, has been in it like 10 times in different Clancy books. Two of the versions of Jack Ryan in two of the Clancy books, is actually supposed to be directly based on Steve Pachenik. And the crazy thing, Abby, this Steve Pachenik video, I went back and watched it recently, and Steve Pachenik actually says something in it that I totally forgot that he said. Steve Pachenik says that on November 3rd, a counter coup was launched against the Clintons, and that people in the intelligence sectors recruited Trump, helped him win the election, by laundering emails that they obtained. So Steve Pachenik's actually claiming in this video that the intelligence community who are pro-Trump got the emails and gave them to WikiLeaks, which is mm -hmm. kind of a very interesting side thread to all this that like, you know, just from like a conspiracy narrative, I've never heard anybody like research or sort of try to dig into that idea that the emails didn't come from Russia, they didn't come from Seth Rich, that Steve Pachenik is actually saying that, that they came from a group of people like himself who are sort of connected to the intelligence community. I'm not saying that Steve Pachenik is telling the truth in this video. What I am saying, though, that is, I think, infallible is that this is the earliest iteration of the QAnon narrative in the form of the Steve Pachenik video from, I think, November 3rd, 2016. And I challenge any journalist or anybody listening to this out there to find something that's actually earlier than that, that lays out the QAnon narrative that specifically. And I think that's significant. I don't know if 
the people who became the QAnon copied this guy. It could be something that simple, but the template of it comes from him. I'm willing to be wrong on this. Maybe someone else came up with it before, but this concept that Trump was recruited by pro-Trump intelligence, military intelligence insiders, and given an upper hand in the election by them, that's uh, that's comes from Steve Pachinik. Mm-hmm. And that's very fascinating to me. So I don't know what that means, but you know, mm-hmm. Doug Valentine, who's an author who's written a lot of books about the CIA, thinks that QAnon could be some kind of CIA CIA thing. I mean, he he co- he pointed out the timing of Mike Pompeo taking over the CIA with the first posting on QAnon. So I know we're maybe losing some people. This is going a lot of. Well, you you cover this in the QAnon series, so people should listen to that. If sure. They want, yeah. You know. I mean. And I guess you want to just wrap the QAnon discussion up with this last story about the QAnon raid. Um, what is the QAnon raid part? How uh, a viral story came out from local Fox affiliates saying that 39 missing children were found in a raid. Oh, God. Yeah, so there was a QAnon you know, viral story that was going around on social media saying U.S. Marshals found 39 missing children in a double-wide trailer. And when you see that headline, you're like, oh, my God. QAnon and Pedogate are real. And then the story, you look into it deeper, and it actually becomes U.S. Marshals find 39 missing children. And you're like, oh, my God, where did they find all these 39 missing children? That's, that's crazy. That seems like Pedogate might be real. You know, it still you know, seems like this stuff is real. Then when you actually look into the, the story, it's that U.S. Marshals find 39 missing children who are some of them are actually divorced parents overstaying their custody, keeping their kids over, you know, their custody time in various roundups over a two week period. Mm. That's the actual meat of the story. Almost none of it had to do with sex trafficking. And most of the kids, when we're talking about quote unquote kids who are being sex trafficked, the majority of them, most actual underage sex traffic kids are just people who decide to go into prostitution. They're runaways. They're like in their late teens, you know, 16, 17. And most of them don't even like seek out pimps or they don't actually get like quote unquote trafficked. They just sell their own bodies. So like these people who obsess over this idea of like these hidden child prostitution rings even when they look at stats, they're misreading stats, they're misreading articles, they're only looking at the headline. And what's also weird about the story, Abby, is that it came out in local Fox affiliates with like very little details to almost make it seem as if this was like Trump doing some kind of child sex trafficking ring roundup. And I'm wondering if this was sort of a story in the same way that, remember that Seth Rich story came out on the local Fox affiliate and that's how it got picked up as like, Oh my God, the Seth Rich thing's real. Mm-hmm. Like, does does Trump have some kind of like? Is he tapping into these local affiliates? He, I mean, all remember the local affiliates all ran with that coronavirus. Everybody who yeah. died had a cor- comorbidity thing too yeah. recently, and it's like, is Trump doing this? Like, I don't. I mean, I don't know what's well, going Sinclair, on. Sinclair. I don't know if it's just Sinclair Broadcasting putting out. I mean, they were all going to run Plandemic. Exactly, dude. So. Like, did Trump, did Sinclair or somebody in Trump's campaign, like, have them run a soft QAnon story, like a stealth QAnon story? Because this, the headline was so misleading. It was, like, obviously designed for those people. 
Yeah, of course. It probably was the guy who just wrote the headline over the article that just was a QAnoner too. You're, it you know, could have been. Probably just stealth QAnoners working at Fox. Who the fuck knows, surprised. Who knows, And also yeah. during the RNC, Trump gave a nod to QAnon also when he said he's going to fight sex trafficking. It was just completely random, made no sense. He just um, threw it in his speech or something? Just threw it in, yeah. Yeah, I didn't so even know that. That's all he has to say. You know, that's all he has to say. Wow. So... And then, you know, as everyone's praising Trump for saying that the people at the top, all these people don't like him because he hasn't started any new wars and he's trotting out Rand Paul at the RNC, calling him the most anti-war president in a generation. All these people are just like, oh, my fucking God, Trump is so crazy. I can't believe he's saying this shit. I can't believe he's saying that defense contractors want him to start wars so they can make money. Recently, one of the big sort of plays... Um, that's being used against Trump right now is that Trump accused the troops of being quote unquote suckers and losers for just like dying for no reason in wars. This is what Jeffrey Goldberg in the Atlantic has written, whether it's bullshit or not, Trump used this, you know, big, it was a big blow against him seemingly again, you know, probably not going to damage him at all really, but Trump totally pivoted counterpunched against it by like joking around in a speech and being like, well, you know, the generals and the uh, top people at the Pentagon don't like me because uh, they always want more money for weapons and wars. But, um, you know, the, the regular, the regular soldiers, they like me. Like, so he deflected this sort of carefully crafted campaign by Jeffrey Goldberg. And then it started being confirmed by even people at Fox News that Trump said these things. So it was coming from all sides. And he shifted the conversation over to him calling out the military industrial complex. And Greenwald, you know, tweets out the Eisenhower speech about the military industrial complex. Trump retweets it, you know, and it's like, holy shit. Like everyone was just like, Trump's right. It's it's hilarious that the Democrats are attacking Trump from the right now because they were. Everyone's taking the bait, the, you know, the Dems, people from the Obama administration bashing Trump. Again, he really seemed to con the anti-war movement, just like he's always been doing this whole time. And this was like, in a way, almost his biggest play yet to do that. It was sort of like a wag the dog moment. Like, while everyone's seemingly against him, he just pulls out this thing where it's like, oh shit, dude, like Trump is fucking, he's on our side, dude. Holy shit. Like he's right. You know? So what do you think about that, Abby? I think it's hilarious that after four years of him doing the exact opposite in every region of the world, ramping up sanctions, trying to launch several coups, one successfully in Bolivia, another one that was failed in Venezuela, ramping up militarism, troop numbers, troop deaths and civilian casualties, drone strikes nearly 400% everywhere. People still can look at him saying something today and say, oh my God, he's, he's on our side. He's anti-war. Did you see him call out the MIC motherfucker? And it's like, dude, what the hell is going on? Like, how is this possible? It's the perfect play. He'll say something casually, um, either a, just a tweet saying end endless wars or say something that's super obvious, right? That the top people at the Pentagon hate him because um, because they just want him to start wars for money. It's like, really? So first of all, why did you appoint defense contractors to literally fill the top three policy positions at the Pentagon. 
if you guys are at such odds with each other. There's this clip that we use for Empire Files that he's just sitting at a round table of all the top weapons contractors being like, we're just trying to sell weapons, baby, like free reign for all of you guys. I mean, he lifted Obama era restrictions on selling weapons to places like Bahrain. I'm proud to report that Poland has recently purchased a state of the art Patriot missile system. And we're exploring ways to expedite the sale of American military equipment to Japan. I went to Saudi Arabia on the basis that they would buy hundreds of billions, many billions of dollars worth of things. Japan just gave us some numbers that are incredible. They're doubling the amount that they are going to be buying. I said, you have to do me a favor. We don't want these big deficits. You're going to have to buy more. But I really learned since being president, our equipment is so much better than anybody else's equipment. When you look at our companies, Lockheed and Boeing and Grumman. There's great talent around this beautiful room. And thank you all for being here between the head of Boeing and the head of Lockheed and the head of Raytheon and the head of everything else. We have them all. We have them all around. So thank you all for being here. That's an honor. Particular country ordered. You'll never guess who this is. About $110 billion worth of equipment. And I assume you'd like to keep those orders, probably. Yes, sir. In Trump's first year, the State Department approved more than $75 billion in overseas weapons sales, topping the previous record of $68 billion in 2012. It's only ramped up since. In the first six months of 2018, the DOD brokered weapons deals to foreign proxies alone worth $46 billion, more than the $41 billion worth of deals made during all of 2017. By pumping obscene amounts of cash into the war machine while gleefully endorsing bombing and torture, Trump makes it clear to his friends that business will be booming for a long time. Richard Abalafia of the military think tank Teal Group said of the policy shift, diplomacy is out, airstrikes are in. In this sort of environment, it's tough to keep a lid on costs. It's paid off for America's five biggest defense contractors, whose stocks have more than tripled in the last couple of years. He has been objectively like the best POTUS the military industrial complex has ever had because he has embraced the arms dealer in chief to such a new level reaching such new heights um, and making an astronomical amount of money, not to mention creating a new branch of the military, you know, and overseeing the largest military budget of all time. Oh, you mean and, Space Force? Yeah. And, you know, the speaking out of both sides of his mouth thing where he's like, and endless wars, but at the same time, our military is the weakest it's ever been. And we need to strengthen the military. Whose fucking coffers is that money going into? Who gets the money every time a giant Moab is dropped in Afghanistan? Whose pockets are being lined? Defense contractors. You know, and appointing all of these generals to surround him and his leadership and basically just say, take the gloves off. Like, you guys just have free reign. I'm not even going to, like, fuck with you anymore. You guys do whatever you want. So it's comical. It's comical to see this happen every time. It's like a trap that's well laid for, of course, the dumbass no brain Republicans and Trump sycophants who are just like, Trump is calling out the military industrial complex. Trump is the most anti-war president we've ever had because he hasn't started a new war and he's bringing the troops home. Not to mention those people, but when I see people left leaning by into this shit and just simply call out the Democrats for criticizing Trump's rhetoric without acknowledging that Trump has done the exact opposite as president, it's slightly disheartening. It's really depressing for me. It's it's because I do think 
we we talk about this a lot, but I think it just shows it's an illustration of how basically trying to create this bridge, watering down anti-war rhetoric and allowing it to sort of set the framing of anti-war rhetoric in general, watering it down to the point where it's cross-compatible with the Trump movement and the left is a problem because it removes a great deal of the actual core meat of it, the capitalist meat of it. You know, just saying that the military industrial complex is bad if you're on the right, it's meaningless. Like, what do you mean it's bad? Like, why is it bad? Are you criticizing the fact that it's made done for profits that just murder people? Um, because like, do you care about the people who are murdering? Yeah, right. That's how dumbed down the conversation is. Yeah. Like when has Trump actually talked about the cost of war? It's just in the same way that I, you know, was very critical of Tulsi Gabbard. She talks about the quote unquote cost of war. She'll say the phrase, but she doesn't talk about like the cost on like civilians. Like she was there. What did she see? You know, what, like, why are these things being omitted from the conversation when they were super important, you know, only like 10 years ago when we were talking about war? Let's just talk about the drone bombing for a second. Trump has drastically increased drone bombings, but yet when you talk to people in the scene of anti-war now about Trump versus Obama on war, they're just like, Trump hasn't started any new wars. What about Libya? And it's like, well, what about just the drones? I right, mean, Trump right, has actually right. increased, if you're anti-Obama's wars, then you should also be like, yeah, Trump has like drastically increased the drones, the amount of civilian casualties. He's actually lifted the rules of engagement even more. He's actually congratulated and pardoned like literal war, war criminals, criminals who have yeah. like stabbed like Iraqi prisoners just for like for fun. Right. Like on the ride home back to right. their fucking base. Like and 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 even like people who are like neocons are like, damn, you probably shouldn't have pardoned that person. Like, so it's just Yeah. It, it's it's crazy. If Biden says something about okay, let's end the endless war, people would be like, "Oh, really? Like you voted for the Iraq War? You As or like should. or like Kamala Harris? Exactly, Kamala Harris promoting Black Lives Matter. It's like, well, you were the top cop of California. You were this. You were that. They're rightfully called out for the hypocritical past, but for some reason, when Trump says anything. That is brazenly hypocritical because you can look at his actions as president over the last four years completely contradicting what he is claiming that he believes in. They're completely ignored. And it's very, very strange because he is a con artist. He speaks out of both sides of his mouth. Yeah, this may have worked. He may have painted himself as like the populist anti-war candidate to the left of Hillary Clinton, which was not hard to do because he had no policy passed, right? He could just say whatever he fucking wanted, even though he is on record saying he supported the invasion of Iraq. Um, that wasn't hard, right? Because Hillary Clinton was such a war hawk. But now it's just fascinating that this still sticks after serving as POTUS for four years, doing all this crazy ramped up neocon shit around the world after appointing the most bizarre, batshit crazy neocon outliers like oh, Elliot yeah. Abrams. I mean, Mike Pompeo is insane, right? And his surrogates in the House and Senate. I mean, look at who his main allies mm -hmm. are. Lindsey Graham, Tom Cotton. I mean, he talks so much shit about John McCain, but like, look at who the people is that he's allied with. They're the most hawkish motherfuckers there are. Totally. And what's crazy is like, this isn't just a one-off. I mean, he is making this another centerpiece of his reelection campaign. 
I saw on Twitter, I looked, I, I rarely look at his feed, but I did the morning that I saw everyone praising him for calling out the MIC, including Jack Sabayek and shit. He was like, oh, it's just Tuesday morning and he's already been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize and called out the MIC. Like, what's next? And I looked at his timeline and it was literally him like retweeting like people saying he hasn't started a new war, all this shit like a hundred times. Like just in the span of a couple hours, the Eisenhower speech, which Mike reminded me, Eisenhower, when he was leaving office, everyone praises him for this speech against the MIC. When, first of all, great job doing something about it when you were serving in office, Eisenhower. Yeah, it's it's a total kind of weird out. that everyone's like, yeah, total cop out. And also, apparently, the speech was just because at that point in time, if you look at like the timeline of when he gave that, it was when corporations were starting to become intertwined with the government in terms of like the military. And so he was basically just saying the the government needs to keep controlling like this aspect of the military. I don't even know if it was really like this great grandiose thing that we all praise today. If you really look at the context of the speech. It's definitely whitewashed. Yeah. To different extents. It's totally, mm-hmm. totally true. And what's interesting, Abby, I'll just really quickly go into this because I know we do a lot of Rand Paul bashing on the show already <laughs> for good reason. He tried to get you arrested Yes. When you first started working for RT, because you asked him why he endorsed Mitt Romney for president when his dad was still in the race. Okay. Just in the same way that we, you know, you would ask Tulsi Gabbard, why did you endorse Biden when Bernie was still in the race? You know, that's a totally valid question. Rand Paul, um, he would completely put his head down, walked away from you in silence as you were following him in the Capitol building, and then later tried to get you arrested for this shit. So we've always had a bone. For stalking and harassment. Sure. Yeah. You know. And we've always had a bone to pick with him for that reason. We've always been more preferential of his dad because we feel that his dad, even though he's way too far right for us, that we still feel that, you know, he was more authentic than his son and that his son was always kind of a sellout. But now, Abby, he's gone, I think, to his lowest low yet where he was actually walking home or walking for some reason back to a hotel or something from the RNC convention, which I think is odd in the first place. Why? He claims that his wife sleeps with a gun under her pillow because she's that paranoid of like left people coming to their house already to commit violence. This was like a year ago she said this. So why would he walk you know, with his wife away from the RNC convention when there's giant protests happening outside. Why wouldn't he get a car? Wait, can you just think about how crazy that is for a second? That he claims his wife sleeps with a gun under her pillow? She can said you imagine it. doing that? No. It's, can you imagine actually doing that? Dude, it's so wild because that incident where his neighbor tackled him, mm-hmm. they never, Rand Paul and his wife never said it was because that neighbor was like anti-Trump or anti-Republican. No, wasn't it just like a neighbor dispute? That that's the thing. Wasn't it's wasn't political? It seems like that's what it seemed like. But for some reason, right-wingers now remember it. And even Rand has like implied or sort of used that event to make it seem like people are after him. And that shooting. So I guess in fairness, let's give Rand Paul you know, one thing that he was at that baseball field that the Steve Scalise mm-hmm. thing, baseball game where the guy came with a gun. So that I could see that incident making him more on edge. So I guess it's just weird that he would walk, you know, with his wife d- through these protesting crowds and the crowd got rowdy and they were yelling at him, you know, and following him. And I'm sure it would have been intense for anyone, but he's a politician. You know, that's what politicians should expect during a climate of protests. 
And the only thing in the video that happened that was like remotely physical is like someone in the crowd sort of like, you know, the crowd sort of was like pushing and moving back and forth and a cop sort of gets pushed into Rand Paul. And it looks like for a second Rand might stumble over, but nobody's like attacking him. Nobody's throwing anything at him. There's no violence. Nobody's pepper spraying. Nobody's spraying water. And this immediately, the narrative came out that a violent mob attacked Rand Paul and Rand Paul himself went on all these media networks, totally played into that narrative, said that he was scared for his life. He was terrified. I don't know if it was a setup. I don't know why he would have walked there. So it's just weird that how much this blew up and how much now Rand Paul is saying that we need to like surveil Antifa. He's also saying that there was an Antifa plane which is that other crazy thing that Trump came out and said. Were the people wearing black all over yeah. the plane? Yeah. Ba- wasn't that based on like a Facebook meme? Yeah, it was. That Trump must have seen like some boomer meme that he just repeated and then it just became a story. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, so why, you know, just because he's Rand Paul and he's Ron Paul's son, you know, it doesn't mean that these people are like super principled or that they have consistent values. I mean, Ron Paul's show has been pretty bad recently. I mean, it's been worse than usual. The Liberty Report, a lot of like- I can't believe you've been listening to it. Jesus Christ. I mean, I check check out everything, you know, just to see like what- What the hell's going on? I mean, (laughs) like I followed this, I follow a libertarian comic named Dave Smith on Twitter. And, uh, you know, he used to be really anti-war. And when Trump first got in office, I thought some of his commentary was really strong, strongly anti-Trump on foreign policy. Dave Smith had this to say after that incident with Rand Paul getting sort of uh, yelled out by a crowd. He says, Rand Paul, the absolute best senator on war, police reform, ending the drug war, ending mass incarceration, was attacked by a mob as he was walking with his wife. These people are absolute scum who have no principles whatsoever. The mob should be put down by any means necessary. So this is a actual libertarian dude who's he gets invited to all these libertarian conventions. He's pretty big in the scene. He believes the mob should be put down by any means necessary. This is what people mean when they say that libertarianism could be an easy pathway to fascism or that it's crypto somehow crypto fascist already. This is like creepy to see a guy that I, you know, I don't share his politics, but to see him go to this level because Rand Paul was yelled at, like, that's really bad. It's funny because all the libertarians that I've associated with in the past that around the Ron Paul movement, and I just knew a lot of people in that called themselves libertarian, their whole thing was like the non-aggression principle and whatever. And it's like, what about this Rand Paul incident should warrant putting them down by any means necessary? And what the fuck does that mean? Like shooting them like dogs in the street, arresting them, throwing them in black vans, disappearing people. I mean, what are we talking about here? Because to me, I just saw activists who were riled up yelling at a sitting senator. I encourage that to everyone who's in Congress. That's the price you pay when you're an elected official. You yeah. know, you you are heckled in the streets and, and as well you should be for your fucking crazy positions, especially the fact that he went on a giant tirade at the RNC lauding Trump for being the most anti-war president in a generation. That That's, is embarrassing shit, dude, and you deserve to be heckled wherever you go. See, I, I, I'm i so not plugged in right now to like the actual of what I probably should be. I didn't even know he spoke at the RNC. That's embarrassing. And it's just, it's sad because he's the one... Val- putting sort of that rubber stamp. If it wasn't for Rand Paul, 
actually, I don't think a lot of people would be buying into Trump's anti-war rhetoric. He's Ryan Paul is creating a pathway for that by rubber stamping all these things Trump says, being like, yeah, end the wars, you know, bring the troops home, Trump, I agree with you, blah, blah, blah. When Trump first got into office, Rand Paul was actually saying, like, why is Trump hiring Elliot Abrams? Why is Trump doing X, Y, and Z? Right, right, right. Yeah. Something clicked, changed. He got conned by Trump. The Paul family got conned by Trump. And look, I got to say this because I haven't said this on the podcast before. Michael Scheuer, the guy we brought up earlier, who was the bin Laden CIA station chief, who is now a QAnoner, who thinks John Brennan should be executed, Mm -hmm. he was a consultant for the Ron Paul campaign. That's not good. Like, I, I mean, so I, I don't, you know, I, I just think that there's, there were bad hints already there. Um, it's, it's scary that, that, that he's rubber stamping this because it's helping still toxify the anti-war movement. One other thing, Robbie, is this whole Rand Paul incident really just makes you realize how dueling like our realities are. I mean, going back to the Nick Sandman thing, the fact that Nick Sandman spoke at the RNC and and that video, when it came out, it was like that meme that we saw that was like, do you see gold or blue? And everyone was like, I I clearly see the color blue. And everyone, and then like other people were just like, I clearly see gold. It was just like the weirdest shit ever. That's how I feel when I watch these videos, whether it be Nick Sandman harassing the Native American elder um, and people saying, oh no, he was harassed by the Native American elder. And it's like, are we not watching the same video? Or this Rand Paul thing saying that, you know, he his life was threatened and he was scared for his life because to me, I just see people heckling him. Yeah. Or the Kenosha thing where clearly this little kid murderer in cold blood gunned down three people, yet half of the people are saying he acted in self-defense. How could you not see the video? It's like, it doesn't even matter what's documented. Nothing matters anymore. Reality is completely disintegrated. And it's just wildly up for your interpretation, even though we see what is happening with our own eyes on video. And that's why, you know, it's not that the, to me, it's not that people are more conspiratorial that's the problem. It's what you're talking about. It's these dueling realities. And it's not just that people are in their own reality. It's that like each side of it has this locked in lockstep narrative to it. Mm -hmm. And that's what's creepy to me. It's like the conspiracy side does too now. So... When we're talking about someone like Justin Amash, it's almost like I don't really align with him politically. You know, I don't really have anything great to say about his career in general. You know, but at least sim- he has principled critiques that, as what, a sitting libertarian. You know, that's what I'm saying. But it's so it's like I don't really know much about him. But regardless, it's really refreshing. It's almost like wait a second, this person for a second put on the they live glasses. It's like. You know, it's like this sort of like wake up sheeple moment where it's like, how is this guy able to just cut right through this and see through all this when like everybody else is in this locked in narrative, you know? Right. Like, and you know, you see someone like Chris Hayes being like, oh my God, how is Trump able to present himself as anti MIC when he does blah, blah, blah? It's like, dude, you bring Bill Crystal on your show. Shut yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Justin Amash to me seems more authentic because it's like, here's what, he, I mean, why don't you read some of the things he actually says? Yeah, I mean, so I saw, yeah, no, it's great. So Justin Amash, again, I think he's, he might be the only libertarian in Congress. I'm not sure. Um, but he tweeted, conservatives and libertarians like me who repeatedly criticized Obama for not ending those wars are now supposed to praise Trump for simply promising to do a fraction of what Obama actually did. Why? Because Trump talks like a guy who wants to end wars. Stop talking, actually end them. 
And then, um, and then he goes on to talk about the vetoes. Trump has only issued eight vetoes as president. Five of the eight vetoes are legislation that would prevent him from transferring weapons of war or engaging in military hostilities without congressional approval. I thought that that was really interesting. Then the most fascinating part of all is in a response, because so many people say this to me too. They're just like, Trump tried to end the war in Afghanistan and he was blocked by Congress and blocked by Democrats, actually. And someone, and Glenn Greenwald wrote it, and someone posted it to Justin Amash and he responded being like, oh, wow. He's like, I've repeatedly heard this claim that Trump was blocked. I had no idea what anyone was talking about until now because it's not true. The NDAA is the House version and hasn't become law. There's nothing blocking him. And then he goes on and on to explain that Trump has literally only removed troops that he himself added. Why are we praising someone for removing troops that he himself added? Did people praise Obama for removing all the troops that he added during the surge? Because that's what he did. And let's not forget the drone wars. That's where Trump is unambiguously the worst, launching strikes at a far higher rate than Obama. The lack of transparency from this administration, combined with the media failure to report on the wars he helped, hide this horrific reality. And he also says, again, like Barack Obama reduced these troop levels in Afghanistan by 25K, Iraq by 140K. Did we praise Obama? I don't remember anyone praising Obama for removing 140,000 troops from Iraq. Do you? That's crazy. I mean, barely. The left was very, very, the real anti-war tepid. left at the time and libertarian anti-war was extremely tepid and didn't give him an inch. That's what's so weird about Trump. It's like we give him every opportunity to, to just bullshit us. And Trump's going to continue to do the same thing leading up to the election because he's a con artist and because he knows what he needs to say to get elected. And we need to cut through this rhetoric. Because this is clearly something that he feels is working for him because he keeps pushing it. You know, and he's propping up all these surrogates to say and repeat these talking points. So it's up to us um, to not fall for it, to keep pushing the need for an actual resistance movement based on anti-imperialism. Keep our eyes open, guys. It's just going to keep getting worse and weirder. Thanks for listening to Media Roots Radio. Please consider donating to us for as little as $5 a month so you can get access to all of our Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes. And I hope you enjoyed today's show. Talk to you guys later. We kill kids from the basketball court. We kill kids from the basketball court. We kill nearly 3,000. We kill nearly 3,000. We kill nearly 3,000. We kill nearly 3,000. We killed nearly 3,000 people on 9 11. We killed nearly 3,000 people on 9 11. We killed nearly 3,000. We killed nearly 3,000. We killed nearly 3,000. We killed nearly 3,000. We killed nearly 3,000 people on 9 11. We killed nearly 3,000 people on 9-11. We killed the airplane when it was over American soil. We killed nearly 3,000 people on 9-11. We killed 